Good morning. Uh, so this morning, um, this is going to be uh, one of kind of a pair of lessons this Sunday and next Sunday, Lord willing. Um, going to be looking at two events in the Old Testament that um, are kind of obscure, um, usually in terms of general knowledge of the Old Testament or the Bible. Um, these might not be events you've um, been familiar with. Maybe these will be the first times you've heard of these events. Um, but these lessons are going to go together because they teach, I think, two angles on the importance of God's word. We're going to look at an event in Joshua this morning. Um, so the scripture reading is uh, from Deuteronomy 27, which gives the background for the event that we're going to be studying. It gives much more detail about the event. So the event happens in Joshua 8. We're going to work our way there. Um, but this is an event where we see God leading the people to put a high priority on renewing their commitment to God, renewing the covenant that they had made with him, renewing their sense of identity, gaining greater reverence in their commitment to God, and remembering things that compel their zeal for God to be protected in a position of faith and obedience. So we're going to see all of that with the lesson this morning. And Lord willing, next week, we're going to see a time frame in the book of Judges where none of these things were happening and try to gain some lessons from uh, one of the events at the end of, end of the book of Judges. So I want to give some background. Um, we're obviously in the period of time of the Old Testament here, being about 1406 B.C., uh, about 40 years since God had taken Israel out of Egyptian slavery. Um, the Old Testament, in some ways, uh, I think can be um, underappreciated. Uh, Jesus, at the end of Luke, would try to teach his disciples that everything in the law of Moses, the Psalms, the prophets, was ultimately testifying to his identity, his teaching, his character. Um, if anything, the Jews who would study the Old Testament before Jesus were getting very much less out of it compared to what we are able to gain now. The Old Covenant contains so many principles and lessons that end up emboldening and strengthening our understanding of New Testament truths. So that's going to be the goal with the lesson. But this is near the beginning of the time frame where God had established the Old Covenant with Israel. God had made a promise to Abraham that he was going to bring his descendants into the land of Canaan, that he was going to give them that land as a place where he would establish his name and bring his seed through which he would bless all the earth through that seed. Moses had just preached the entirety of the book of Deuteronomy to this generation that we're going to be reading about in Joshua. I think you can think about Deuteronomy as uh, Moses' farewell uh, sermon to the nation. Um, so Deuteronomy is a fairly large book, um, but Moses verbally taught that entire book to Israel before they crossed the Jordan River to then begin conquering the land that God had promised to Abraham. Moses had also, uh, by God's instruction, uh, appointed Joshua to take his place as the leader of the people and lead their conquest into Canaan. And I want to give a, a brief kind of flash summary of the events of Joshua up to chapter 8, where we're going to be studying. So in the first five chapters of Joshua, uh, Joshua ends up taking command 
uh, in chapter 1. Famously, God, is, uh, telling, God tells Joshua, be strong and courageous, meditate on the word and on the law day and night. That's the means by which you will have success. Be strong, be courageous. Then Joshua's Israelite brethren say the same thing. They urge Joshua, be strong, be courageous. We'll do everything you say. We will follow you. We will conquer the land with you. And then Israel crosses the Jordan River, uh, just like the exodus out of Egypt. Um, God separates waters for them to cross over. The Jordan River is separated miraculously, and the whole nation ends up crossing over uh, on dry land. After they cross over, it's kind of shocking, but you find out that none of the children of the first generation who first came out of Egypt, none of those children had been circumcised. So before they go into the land of promise in chapter 5, you might have a heading like my Bible says Israel is circumcised. Uh, one of the most fundamental things that was uh, required for a covenant with God. So they, they circumcised the males, and at the end of chapter 5 in verse 10, they camp in Gilgal, they celebrate the Passover, and they prepare themselves to then conquer Jericho. So in chapter 6, Israel first famously conquers Jericho by circling the city for seven days, and then the, on the seventh day they circle it seven times, blow trumpets, the walls fall, Rahab the harlot is rescued and becomes a part of Jesus' lineage. And there's a warning. If you look very quickly, if you're in Joshua, verse 18 of chapter 6, God gives a very strict warning. But as for you, only keep yourselves from the things under the ban, so that you do not covet them and take some of the things under the ban and make the camp of Israel accursed and bring trouble on it. So with Jericho, everything in the city, all of its loot, everything was to be dedicated to the Lord, not for the people. All of the cities after that, the people could take things for themselves, that would be fine, but with Jericho, the first fruits of the conquest were to be entirely dedicated to the Lord. Chapter 7, Israel is defeated by an enemy that did not seem very intimidating, the city of Ai. Um, I think it's probably pronounced Ai. Formally, but I'm going to say AI. Um, so Israel's defeated by AI, and it's because they were careless with this warning. Uh, they just rushed headfirst. They were, they were self-dependent. They were overconfident. And they thought, well, Jericho was a pretty easy breeze. But they went in without consulting God. And God had given a very clear warning, and so it would have been safer if they would have consulted God and said, hey, by chance, did anybody violate that ban that we're not aware of? And they didn't do that, and so they consult God after being defeated. They find out that Achan had stolen some things from Jericho, and Achan's sin is punished and found out. And in chapter 8, they consult God, and uh, in chapter 8, verse 1, it notice the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear and be dismayed. And then at the end of verse 8, You shall do it according to the word of the Lord. See, I have commanded you. Verse 18, Then the Lord said to Joshua, The end of verse 27, according to the word of the Lord, which he had commanded Joshua. So the second time they go against Ai, they are very careful to make sure that everything they are doing is with God's express guidance. They're being much more careful to consult God, and thus they have great success. There's much more of Canaan to be conquered. They have barely began the conquest into the land that God had promised Abraham. And it's here in chapter 8, verse 30 through 35, that Israel pauses 
to do what is an incredible scene. I, I think it's just amazing when you kind of let it sink into your mind and try to visually work this out, what they did here. It's, it's astounding. This was instructed twice, though. We read Deuteronomy 27. Just for a moment, if you would turn back to Deuteronomy 11, I do want to show you another place where this was very explicitly instructed by God. Uh, Deuteronomy 11, 26 through 32. I'll give you a moment to get there. Um, this is Deuteronomy 11, 26 through 32. You may want to um, put a marker in your Bible in Deuteronomy. Uh, we're going to be referencing some things in Joshua 8 throughout the lesson from Deuteronomy. Uh, so you'll probably, again, just want to put a marker there to turn quickly back to it. Um, but Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 26. So this is, again, in the context where Moses in Deuteronomy is constantly urging the people, you've got to be careful to remember the word of the Lord. You've got to be careful to, to be uh, steadfast in doing his will. Hold his commandments. Treasure them. That's how you'll have success. Um, that's literally in verse 22 through 25. Notice in verse 22, if you are careful to love the Lord your God, verse 23, then the Lord will drive out all the nations from before you. Verse 26. See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing if you listen to the commandments of the Lord your God, which I am commanding you today. And the curse, if you do not listen to the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside from the way which I am commanding you today by following other gods that you have not known. It shall come about when the Lord your God brings you into the land where you are entering to possess it, that you shall place the blessing on Mount Gerizim and the curse on Mount Ebal. Are they not across the Jordan? west of the way toward the sunsets in the land of the Canaanites who live in the Arabah, opposite Gilgal, beside the oaks of Moreh. For you are about to cross the Jordan to go in to possess the land which the Lord your God is giving you, and you shall possess it and live in it. And you shall be careful to do all the statutes and judgments which I am setting before you today. So now, let's go to Joshua chapter 8, and let's finally read where they actually do this and fulfill the instruction we, we just read as well as what we read in Deuteronomy 27. Joshua chapter 8 and verse 30 through 35. So again, this is after they have conquered both Jericho and Ai. They've seen the consequences of being careless and self-dependent. And so this is just a, a great pause in greater events that are happening around them. Verse 30. Then Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, in Mount Ebal just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the sons of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones on which no man had wielded an iron tool. They offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. And that's what was specified in Deuteronomy 27. Uh, Miss Lucy, we're in Joshua chapter 8, verse 30 through 35. Um, verse 32, he wrote there on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written, in the presence of the sons of Israel. All Israel with their elders and officers and their judges were standing on both sides of the ark before the Levitical priests who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, the stranger as well as the native. Half of them stood in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had given command at first to bless the people of Israel. Then, afterward, he read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word 
of all that Moses had commanded, which Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel with the women and the little ones and the strangers who were living among them. So I don't usually have pictures, but I think this is helpful um, because this this happened in a a real place that actually um, exists, uh, as every event in the Bible did. But Leon Malden, um, he's a brother in Alabama who's traveled many, many times to the nation of, well, the region of Israel and the places where all of these events took place. This is a picture that Leon Malden took of Gerizim on the left, Ebal on the right. People have experimented, by the way, with standing on um, kind of the front side of the mountains. Just one person on one side, one person on the other side, and they would shout at each other to see if the other person could clearly hear them. And even just one person shouting across, you can clearly hear the other person because these mountains serve as a a natural amphitheater. Um, So kind of imagine on Mount Gerizim, not just one person, but you have millions of people on that mountain in front of it. So this would be they're facing Mount Ebal. And then on Mount Ebal, you you have, again, hundreds of thousands, maybe a million people just flooded on top of that mountain and they're shouting things at the other, at the other side, right? So th- this would have been quite the scene and quite the noise. I imagine it's not just something that they would have heard themselves, but maybe the surrounding regions in Canaan would have also have heard these things, right? Um, and obviously one side is shouting blessings from the law, the other side is shouting curses from the law, and at the end of Deuteronomy 27, which the... I was telling Eva, I had debated having Jason read all of it, but um, chose to kind of stop where the, the um, tribes are specified. But they shout things that they then all agree to. So after something is shouted, it says, then all the people say, amen. So they're all agreeing to the covenant again. They're renewing it, they're remembering it, and this sense of reverence is to be renewed in the process. So just kind of put that in mind. This would have been an incredible event. It would have been so memorable. And another thing too is Mount Ebal and Gerizim are right about directly in the center of the region of Israel. So you imagine this is something that they're going to be seeing and they're going to be around these mountains for the rest of their history, right? So you imagine as they're crossing these mountains, as they can see them in the distance, what are they going to be remembering? Hey, that's, that's the place where our forefathers had pronounced these cursings and blessings and renewed their covenant, right? So this first point might be a little bit jarring, but I think one of the main lessons of this great pause is the danger of success. I think this is a reason why they chose at this moment, after they had catastrophically failed with AI, they had been needlessly defeated. Multiple Israelites had died because they had been careless with something God had said and they were irreverent in how they chose to first fight against AI. And so I think they're acknowledging that success is inherently dangerous. And I'd like to pause on this for a little bit. I think something we find in God's word that can be maybe surprising, if success is not connected with God's sacrifices, the result consistently that you see is a hardened heart. I want you to think about how often you really see this very powerfully illustrated in biblical events. Think about the period of the judges. When did the judges, I mean the period of the judges, when was it in that period 
where the nation would actually serve God. It was when they were in distress. And remember when they were delivered, the cycle, they're delivered, they're uh, delivered from their enemies, they have peace, and it gets worse. Think about Saul. Saul, when he was little in his own eyes, had great success. But then he became arrogant and, well, here we go again. Even think about David. When David sinned with Bathsheba, the kingdom was at its pinnacle of success. David's life of suffering in the time frame of Saul, it's over. Kingdom's firmly established. It's relaxing in his palace when the king should be out with their armies. Everything falls apart. Here we go again. Solomon. When Solomon was humble, seeking wisdom, things were great, right? What a good heart he had. But when the kingdom again is prospering and successful, well, again and again and again and again and again and again, we just constantly see it enforced that with success comes great danger, not necessarily physically, but great danger in how pride can very easily, in subtlety, enter into our hearts and destroy the work of God as it was about to do with AI and how God had to draw things out of the nation to discipline them. So I think there's something that's significant just as we start thinking about where they're acknowledging now their success had really come from in verse 31. They build an altar of uncut stone on Mount Ebal. There's only one other time that I believe this happened, and it's in Exodus 24. Uh, They were commanded in Exodus 20 to create an altar of uncut stone, and they do that in Exodus 24. In Exodus 24, it's another very memorable event. Moses comes down after receiving the initial laws from God. He verbally expresses those laws. The people hear what God says, and they say, all that the Lord has said, we will do it. So they build an altar of uncut stone. They make burnt offering and peace offerings, just like at the end of verse 31. But in that instance, they take blood, they put it in basins, and they just start splattering blood on the book of the law and millions of people. It had to touch everybody. So you imagine people are just walking past Moses and the Levites, and they're just throwing blood, and it's getting on everybody. And you imagine the scene, right? And just like in that event where there was a renewal of the covenant, there was an entering into the covenant, there was a great sense of pause and reverence. There was hearing the word of God, agreeing to the word of God, congregational commitment to doing and obeying the word of God. This event, I think, is very deliberately meant to bring their minds back to that event that they can remember, where was this all coming from? And think about the seriousness of well, as well of these sacrifices. In Leviticus chapter 1, burnt offerings, it says, specifically were to teach the principle of redemption. And so in Leviticus 1, it would say when they would give a burnt offering, it would be for his redemption. Peace offerings were to teach the principle that you can have peace with God, but it comes at a price. And so it would bring their minds back to understanding that it's not that God is giving them success or victory by means of merit. It's not because, oh, they're doing so good, they're so righteous. It's by means of truly grace. It's by means of mercy that God is acting despite them, giving them success. We'll see that referenced more in just a moment. But just think about, again, the pause here, the blood, the animals, remembering Exodus 24 and all the things of Mount Sinai. What would that do? How would that affect their hearts and their humility? 
It would reinforce a God-directed humility. It would encourage them to reinvest their faith in God, to revere God and to remember how dependent they are on him and the obligation they have to depend on what he's able to provide and obey him to receive the things that he's promising. And it would help them remember again where, where, their, where their success is really originating from and why they were being given these things. God was not just arbitrarily giving them a nice place to live for the sake of their own leisure and enjoyment. There was a very important purpose that was um, established long before their generation and was meant to continue on perpetually far beyond their generation. And here they were within this greater context and they needed to make sure that they saw where they really were in this context and where God had taken them from and where he was intending to lead them. So let's look back at Deuteronomy chapter 8. They built this altar, but then coupled with the sacrifices, we're going to think more about some of the things they would have heard again and been reminded of as Joshua didn't just write the law on stones coated with lime, but he, he read it before the people. They agree to the curses and the blessings. Uh, look at Deuteronomy 8. As God was anticipating bringing the people into the land, he was anticipating danger in what they would receive when they would be in the land. Deuteronomy 8, verses 11 through 18. Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his ordinances and his statutes which I am commanding you today. Otherwise, when you have eaten and are satisfied and have built good houses and lived in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and gold multiply and all that you have multiplies, congratulations. It's obviously not what it says, right? Then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He led you through the great and terrible wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water. He brought water for you out of the rock of Flint. In the wilderness, he fed you manna, which your fathers did not know, that he might humble you, and that he might test you to do good for you in the end. Otherwise, you may say in your heart, my power, and the strength of my hand has made me this wealth. But you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who is giving you power to make wealth, that he may confirm his covenant, which he swore to your fathers as it is this day. Um, so what you'll see on the board, the Israelites had come from Egypt. That was not an easy life. They had just come out of the wilderness. That was not an easy life. And they were about to be in a place where God would tell them, it's, it's like the land just waters itself. You don't even have to really farm as a normal farmer would have to work hard to get anything out of the land. It's, it's just going to produce for you an astonishing, overwhelming abundance. And he says, once you get all these things, you move into houses you didn't even build. You come into farms and lands that you did not even cultivate. You might become proud and forget the Lord your God. Here's something we have to recognize in our faith. Having an easier physical life can lead to a much harder spiritual life with God. And I, I thought about maybe making that sound more severe because the way that Jesus would speak of it, I think, is a little more definitive. You remember when Jesus said how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. 
Those warnings are not given lightly. And just like the principle of success that's not connected with God's sacrifices, what did Jesus just told someone to do before those words were given? It was the rich young ruler. And Jesus told him, if you want life, eternal life, sell what you have, give it to the poor, and then come, follow me. And then he said, uh, it's hard for the rich into the kingdom of heaven. So having an easier physical life can lead to a whole slew of other deceptions and difficulties. While our life physically might be easier, it might be more enjoyable, we have to recognize the danger of greater spiritual struggles, a greater need for sacrifice. I don't think it's an accident that Deuteronomy, more than Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, or Numbers, encourages sacrificial generosity constantly because they were right on the border of entering Canaan. They were right about to get into the land. And Moses was careful to say, guys, you've got to make sure you understand what God is giving you. It's not that it's wrong for you to have what you have, but you really need to remember the Lord and be careful to use it in a way that honors him. Let's look in the next chapter at Deuteronomy 9, 1 through 7. Something, again, that is difficult to articulate. They were winning spiritual battles, right? And so Jericho was a battle won by the Lord. He gave them that battle. Jericho, or Ai, the second time they went against the land, that was, a, that was a battle that God won for them. And they would continue to win battles by God granting it to them. But now look at Deuteronomy 9, 1 through 7. Hear, O Israel, you are crossing over the Jordan today to go in to dispossess nations greater and mightier than you, great cities fortified to heaven, a people great and tall, the sons of the Anakim, whom you know and of whom you have heard it said, who can stand before the sons of Anak? Know therefore today that it is the Lord your God who is crossing over before you as a consuming fire. He will destroy them and he will subdue them before you so that you may drive them out and destroy them quickly, just as the Lord has spoken to you. Do not say in your heart, when the Lord your God has driven them out before you, because of my righteousness, the Lord has brought me into possess this land. But it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is dispossessing them before you. It is not for your righteousness or for the uprightness of your heart that you are going to to possess their land. But it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord your God is driving them out before you in order to confirm the oath which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Know then, it is not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you this good land to possess it. (laughs) For you are a stubborn people. Remember, do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. From the day that you left the land out of Egypt until you arrived at this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord. What a downer. But can you see why that warning would be so necessary? You know, as good as it would be to go into the land and possess it, again, Moses is recognizing there's a critical danger. You're going to win these battles You're going to be empowered by God to do things you couldn't do without him. And you might be tempted in the secret places of your heart to say, it's because of my righteousness that God has done these things for me. This is going to lead us in the next big point to see the value of God's word, that hearing these things would remind them that there needed to be a resolve, a commitment to guard their hearts, not just their behavior, but Deuteronomy focuses on how would their success tempt their heart to depart from God. Moses recognized that's where it would really begin. So even winning spiritual battles, it can blind our vision and our judgment in the Lord if we're not careful. 
think a way to think about this. Um, when I was younger, there were, there were temptations I would face where, ironically, on Sunday, you'd, you'd think Sunday would be the time where I would be most guarded against temptation, right? You just met with the saints, prayers and, and songs of commitment and, and adoration to God and a lesson from God's word, and it's, it's exciting and encouraging. And yet, on Sundays... Those were the days where I would actually most let my guard down and be most vulnerable, actually, to consistently give in to temptation. Because there is a danger to that satisfaction or that joy, it's, it's, again, it's, it's kind of hard to articulate. But there is a danger where you're succeeding spiritually and you can easily then let your guard down and not realize that you need to recommit and renew a seriousness in serving God. I just want to end this, this point looking at Luke 9, where you see this, I think, very clearly fulfilled in Jesus' attitude in his ministry. Look at Luke chapter 9, verses 43 through 45. Luke chapter 9, 43 through 45. <clears throat> so this is after the Mount of Transfiguration. God glorified Jesus' appearance for a moment. His face was shining. The disciples were amazed. Uh, Jesus has a lot of things going well in his ministry and he casts out a demon-possessed boy's demon. And if you look at verse 43, they're all amazed at the greatness of God. This is, this is incredible. What an exciting time. But while everyone was marveling at all that he was doing, he said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. For the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this statement, and it was concealed from them so that they would not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him about this statement. What a downer. Like, Jesus, just let us be excited. Isn't this wonderful? This is amazing. Jesus never said, this warning about his death, never said it so seriously. This is the only time he says, let, this, let these words sink into your ears. Listen now. Listen carefully. I'm going to die. Jesus' death was not just the end of his life. It was every step of the way. We don't make these animal sacrifices. We don't build altars like they did. But certainly the heart that is continuously recognizing I need to revere God. I need to be realizing that this is about me denying myself, protecting my heart, being like Jesus. Jesus' attitude in Luke 9 is the fulfillment of all the principles that we're studying. Jesus never let the success that he was experiencing make him rely on himself to misjudge God's grace or become self-dependent. So this brings us to the value of God's word. It's not just that God was trying to frighten the people as they would like shout the curses of the law at each other and say amen. Um, God was striving to protect his relationship with the people and preserve his people in a condition where he could bless them as freely and abundantly as possible. When I was um, in Alabama, there was one time I was out to eat with a friend of mine with, I think, his two or three kids. And I can get too excited with kids. And so um, I was like blowing the straw, hold, like the straw paper at the kids. And they just went nuts and they got out of control. And what the dad told me is kids will take these things that you do and they will take them much farther than you realize, right? Um, and I never forgot that. That really stuck with me. And so victory was great. They were, this was God's plan all along, to take Israel into Canaan. 
But the reality is, we, like little children, can take things too far, and then what should be a good thing can easily be twisted and turned into something that is no longer for our spiritual well-being. And so when God is giving boundaries, when he's giving warnings, when he's having the people agree to the curses, he's not just arbitrarily trying to freak them out. He's trying to set boundaries to protect the people in a certain condition where he can bless them as much as possible. And I think the reading of God's word here is just so heavily emphasized. It's, it's important, I think, to draw some things out of this. The public and personal reading of scripture I don't mean this to shame anybody. I think this is just a very general reality. The public and personal reading of God's word is generally underappreciated. And God desperately wants to change our minds about this. God's word can be difficult to begin to enjoy. Um, There are difficult sections of God's word to read. But I think we've got to be really careful the way that we talk about God's word, the way that we talk about difficult sections of God's word. Leviticus or Chronicles. Another illustration, I remember when I was younger, my family was sitting down for a, a Bible reading um, at the dinner table. And I had, I had a really bad attitude at this point in general. So what, what I said in this was a reflection of something bigger. But anyway, we were reading Chronicles, like the genealogy section. And I was reading it with the family and I, I got angry. You know, I was like, I don't see what the point of this is. This is annoying to read. And I remember my dad very gently said, you know, the problem is not God's word. I think the problem might be your attitude about God's word. And 100% he was right. He was absolutely right. Um, The genealogies, that is God's beautiful inspired word. Leviticus, as difficult as it can be to understand how to connect with those laws and draw lessons out, it's, it's beautiful. It's, oh, the names, every part of God's word. We've got to learn to talk about it in a good way where just like complaining, if you're working a job and you begin to complain, you can point, poison everyone else's mind about that job. We can do the same thing with God's word, where we talk about God's word like, oh, you know, those sections. And you can begin to demotivate someone's excitement about the wholeness of God's word. And so it's, it's so important. They, they were not reading sections of God's word on e-ball that were the most exhilarating sections you could possibly read, right? They were sections of law. But it was beautiful it was beautiful what they, were, what they were confessing as they read it. The whole scene was, was incredible. And the warnings in God's word with the direction, the, the reading of difficult sections, all of this is meant to protect our joy and give it a sense of free direction. Look at John 15. Um, one thing that's mentioned in uh, Deuteronomy again and again, and it's mentioned in Deuteronomy 27, When God's word is commanded to be read publicly, you will see that God will say, and there you shall rejoice. And so God wanted them to connect great joy and the joys of fellowship, the joys of being together, the joys of celebrating festivals in Israel. He wanted that to be directly connected to the hearing of God's word publicly. Look at John 15. Again, Jesus fulfills these principles reflected and foreshadowed in the law. John 15, verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy would be made full. God was not, again, just trying to burden them with information, with difficult warnings. He was giving their joy its liberty and giving them the direction and the boundaries that they needed 
so that he could freely bless them and connect with them in the best possible way. I want to read a larger section of Deuteronomy again, if you'll turn back to Deuteronomy 7. And just like the songs that Brandon Brandon, uh, led us in this morning, God's word is, is just woven with incredible promises. You see God's character being emphasized and shined through and the encouragement we gain as we see God and his whole nature and different things he's done is, is beautiful. And so think about that as we read Deuteronomy 7, 9 through 21. Again, things they would have heard Joshua reading in the Levites that convey amazing promises and, and amazing aspects of God's character. Verse 9. Know therefore that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God, who keeps his covenant and his loving kindnesses to a thousandth generation with those who love him and keep his commandments, but repays those who hate him to their faces to destroy them. He will not delay with him who hates him, but will repay him to his face. Therefore you shall keep the commandments and the statutes and the judgments which I am commanding you today to do them. Then it shall come about because you listen to these judgments and keep and do them, that the Lord your God will keep with you his covenant and his loving kindness, which he swore to your forefathers. He will love you and bless you and multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of, the, of your womb and the fruit of your ground, your grain and your new wine and your oil and, and the increase of your herd and the young of your flock and the land which he swore to your forefathers to give you. You shall be blessed above all peoples. There will be no male or female barren among you or among your cattle. The Lord will remove from you all sickness. And he will not put on you any of the harmful diseases of Egypt that you have known, but he will lay them on all who hate you. You shall consume all the peoples for whom the Lord your God will deliver to you. Your eyes shall not pity them, nor shall you serve their gods, for that would be a snare to you. If you should say in your heart, these nations are greater than I, how can I dispossess them? You shall not be afraid of them. You shall well remember that the Lord, what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt, the great trials which your eyes saw and the signs and the wonders and the mighty hand and the outstretched arm by which the Lord your God brought you out. So shall the Lord your God do to all the peoples of whom you are afraid. Moreover, the Lord will, your God will send the hornet against them until those who are left and hide themselves from you perish. You shall not dread them, for the Lord your God is in your midst, a great and awesome God. Hearing the word of God, it renews godly values, gives us the perspective we need, helps us prevent from over-investing in things that only produce harm when they're given the priority that doesn't belong to them and only belongs to God. It renews our sense of commitment to God. When we personally invest in reading God's word, you're saturated with God's desire for commitment and the blessing he gives to those who are committed to him. It gives us a greater sense of purpose and identity and helps us see how God is trying to keep us attached to him and the dangers that Satan tries to hide in subtlety to take us away from God slowly to cause us to drift. And if you look again uh, back in verse 17, God isn't just warning about dangers of idolatry, of um, self-dependence. He's trying to calm their fears. What they would hear is, If you're afraid, I want you to remember something. God is in your midst. He will love you. He is going to keep his promises. You have no reason to be afraid. God is going to do exactly what he said he would do, and you've seen every evidence to prove it. When we read God's word, it gives us the courage that we need to overcome obstacles that stand in the way of our growth. 
But last two things, I want to go to Judges chapter 2, verses 6 through 10. Um, they did these things congregationally. It's an amazing scene, right? Imagine how long this would have took Joshua writing the law on stone coated with lime. He reads it. They get on the mountains. They shout these blessings at one another. It's amazing. But these things they did congregationally in these moments were not the fix for how to pass down faith from one generation to the next. Look at Judges chapter 2, verses 6 through 10. Shocking and disappointing series of statements. When Joshua had dismissed the people, the sons of Israel, when each to his inheritance possessed the land, the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who survived Joshua, who had seen all the great work of the Lord, which he had done for Israel. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. They buried him in the territory of his inheritance in timnath Herez in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gaash. All that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord, nor yet the work which he had done for Israel. How can it be? Well, um, I'm not very old, but I've heard too many parents, kids who have grown up and are not faithful to the Lord, they lament over this and say, I don't know what happened. I always took them to church. Listen, let these words sink into your ears. Congregational teaching can never replace individual teaching, ever. What's being taught in the kids' Bible classes cannot replace what's happening in your household. It never can, it never will. Congregational teaching, it doesn't replace individual teaching, it's meant to inspire it and encourage it, right? So this doesn't mean that congregational teaching is like bad, But it's just like what God was warning Israel with these good things. There can also be a twist if you're not cautious. What needs to happen is our kids need to be taught within the homes. Israel, these events were encouraging. But verse 10 of Judges chapter 2 is a reflection of a catastrophic failure to individually take responsibility to teach and talk about God's word within households. If you read Deuteronomy, that's exactly what God was encouraging. He said, talk about it with your children, teach it diligently, and then both your sons and grandsons will fear the Lord. And so God told them exactly what to do, and this is telling us they did not do it. They did not take that responsibility. And one final appeal, we need to have wisdom, right? Kids, Bibles, they're great. They're a great resource. But we need to be careful with one last thing really think we need to be careful with filtering God's word with our children. Uh, in, jo- in Joshua 8, their little ones were present in this scene, right? So it's not, well, kids, they're going to say some kind of gross stuff in these curses. Why don't you go way to the south for a while so you don't hear any of this and come back when we're all done? You never see God wanting his word filtered, and in fact, we see danger in judges when they are not teaching God's word or, the, or talking about it or just letting it be. Um, so again, as, as exciting as certain things are in the Bible, I do think we've got to be careful to make sure we are just reading God's word and exposing our kids to it growing up. I, I just think it's such a shame when a kid grows up with, with parents who are Christians and there's just an enormous amount of material in the Bible they, they've literally never heard before. Um, it's great when they finally learn it for the first time, but, but what a shame to grow up in environments where you're going to meet with the church, your parents are believers, 
And yet there's just multitudes of treasures in God's word you've never been exposed to in your entire life up to the point where you become an adult. Uh, Let's just please consider this and not let that happen in our households here. And that's it. Um, I appreciate your attention. Um, not, not, a, not a very um, inspiring lesson, maybe, but I hope that it's been um, thought-provoking, and, and I do hope it's been convicting. Um, we just need to be serious about our relationship with God. We need to be aware of the dangers that God clearly portrays exist all around us, and we just need to be very reverent in renewing our commitment to God and remembering what God is seeking in his relationship with us and why we are who we are as his children. So if there's anything that we can do for you, whether it be a conviction to put on Christ in baptism and repent of your past life this morning, we would love to hear that out and assist you. If there's any spiritual need that needs to be made known before the church, we've reserved this time as we stand and sing the invitation song.